0: Welcome to the Series 7 podcast. In this podcast, I have a great interview with somebody who started out wanting to work in the financial services industry as a result of changes in his life. It's an interesting story. I interview Logan Keller, and we talk about his background, what he studied, and how he ended up working in the financial services industry after passing the SIE exam, The Series 7 exam, and finally the Series 66 exam. It's a great story of how he ended up in this business, and I hope you find it enjoyable, just as I enjoyed talking to him. I am on Skype with Logan Keller. Logan Keller's somebody probably a lot like you who's been interested in the financial services industry and basically followed all the steps to becoming employed in this industry. And Logan, you and I have talked off and on in the past as you bought some of my lessons. And I thought you had an interesting story and I wanted to go back through it. We're not going to talk about who your employer is or anything like that because this is not company specific. This is just uh, the, the journey of you as an individual getting into the financial services industry. So Logan, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you come from.
1: Well, so to start off with, I do have to put out my disclosure. My name is Logan Keller. I'm a financial advisor with Soterra Advisors LLC. The firm is an independent registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. Securities and insurance products are offered by the firm. That's my disclosure that I need to get out of the way.
0: Okay, good. So your compliance (laughs) people told you to read that then. That's good. Yes, verbatim.
1: So got that one out of the way. If you are new to the industry, welcome to compliance. It will be a fun journey for you. As always, Franz is not laughing in the background because of, you know, any past histories that he may have with his compliance departments.
0: No, I don't. Since since we are our own, since we are our own firm, I really deal with one person and that's my partner and he lets me do pretty much whatever I want to do. So I don't really have to worry too much about compliance as long as it's disclosed on my U4. And it is, oh, okay. everything's always disclosed and it's, uh, but I can do pretty much whatever I damn well please. And nobody's going to stop me. <laughs> yes.
1: Disclosure. I can't, I can't forget which of the 15 lessons you talked about disclosure being a key, key <laughs> part of any recommendations
0: is disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. And here we are still talking of disclosures. That's right. You know, as long as you <laughs> disclose it, you can rob somebody blind. I think that's pretty much what they say. As long as you disclose that I'm going to rob you, you can rob somebody blind. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but that's about what it feels like sometimes. Oh so. goodness,
1: it does. So, um, but no. So a little bit about myself. Uh, graduated from high school in 2009. Uh, here originally from Colorado Springs, and I was luckily able to settle down um, here in Colorado Springs again. So that's been kind of nice to be close to to friends and family growing up. But. Uh, after high school, went off and got my bachelor's of atmospheric sciences from the University of North Dakota, uh, which, you know, just really lends itself to being here in the financial services industry. <laughs> they a powerhouse. Having a background in aerospace science. <laughs> That's a power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the same acronyms are used, a lot of the same jargon. Like, it really did not take me all that long. Did not take me a couple of years to pass the SIE 7 and 66 at all. Um, but yeah, from from North Dakota, went off and joined the Army uh, in about 2013. I should say I did ROTC there in North Dakota, uh, joined the Army on active duty and, and selected uh, Apaches, uh, the age AH 64 And that, that works off a order of merit list for the Army. It's based off needs of the Army. So my roommate and I were competing with, what was it, 30-some other lieutenants to see who would get to fly what airframe. Uh, and so my roommate and I got the two AH-64 Apache slots. Uh, one other gentleman got to fly a, a CH-47 Chinook, and everybody else got to go fly Blackhawks, the UH-60. Um, so very fortunate with that, and I, I'll start off by saying that is not because I am the smartest person in the room or the strongest person in the room. I just realized that in college, my roommate was smarter and stronger than I was. Uh, And I was like, I'm going to follow that guy. I'm just going to ride his coattails, whatever he's doing. I should probably be doing as well. And it it worked out. Uh, I was moderately successful in flight school. Um, From there, went off to Fort Hood, Texas. I I think it's called Fort Cavasis now, but they've changed the names of those. I um, went off to Fort Hood. I was a, a platoon leader, for those of you who don't speak Army. Uh, that means I was responsible for about 35 soldiers, four AH-64 Apaches, uh, and then for a period of time, I was also responsible for the drones that went along with those. So, you know, 25 years old, having $450 million worth of equipment that I was responsible for was kind of a a growing up phase for me. Uh, From there, went off and became a a maintenance troop platoon leader, and then eventually the XO. Um, That was 960 million, plus or minus, I think sometimes was up to about $1.4 billion worth of equipment that I was just running the scheduled and unscheduled maintenance operations for. Uh, From there deployed to Iraq, still still with that job. Um, deployed to Iraq and Syria, did a combat tour for a period of time in 2018, came home. uh, My girlfriend at the time looked at me and said, so what are we doing? Uh, Stayed with you through a deployment. We going to make this thing official or not? And luckily, thankfully, I'm I'm married to my wonderful wife, uh, who is uh, uh, currently, she's the oncology and infusion pharmacists here at one of the local hospitals. So for anyone wondering, I'm not the smartest in that pair. And I know that full well and good. Uh, it's certainly married up with her. Uh, from there, when became a doctrine instructor, which is exactly as nerdy as that sounds, I taught attack and reconnaissance, reconnaissance doctrine uh, at Fort Rucker, Alabama. For a couple so, of years. so you're
0: still in the military at this point in time. You've been deployed Correct. and went back then. Okay.
1: Continue Correct. On. So that would have been, so I spent 2015 to 2018 in Texas at Fort Hood. Uh, come back in 2018 and it was the end of, or is the very beginning of 2019. Uh, got stationed at Fort Rucker, became that doctrine instructor. Um had to get a major hip surgery at that point in time for some injuries that I sustained while in Iraq and uh, COVID hit around that time. I don't know uh, if you're familiar with COVID or at all, or if you've heard of it, Um, but that, that kind of stopped my physical therapy. So I had a great surgery, great surgeon, physical therapy was going well, COVID hit no more physical therapy and per army regulations, you get 365 days from the time that you are injured, um, or at least go on profile for that injury to recover, I did not recover in time. And so I ended up getting medically retired from the Army May 19th, 2021. So from there, uh, wife and I decided that we wanted to start a family. Let's,
0: let's stop there a second. There's a lot to delve into there. Now, let's start from the rear and go back. Mm-hmm. Did you want to become a career military officer then? Was that your goal?
1: To start off with, yes. Um, once I got into the Army, um, especially the active duty force and a line unit, like um, like the Apache squadron that I was in, the operations tempo was just brutal. Um, I, I mean, I was at work most days. 6 a.m. Um, getting home around 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, and I was doing that five to six days a week. And that was here in the U.S. That wasn't when I was deployed.
0: Now, what would you do during all that time? Were you flying? Were you preparing for flight? What What is the work schedule like then?
1: Um, so you've got you've got physical training at 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, I would usually just go straight from PT, go shower at the hangar and then as a as a platoon leader or as an EXO, I'd have a lot of administrative functions I'd have anywhere from 35 to you know 100 people uh that I was responsible for so that's a lot of evaluations and reports and things like that so there's a lot of administrative functions there was a lot of operational planning to be done um you know if we had any weekend training to be done I was responsible for you know planning all that for for my unit um and i also had to help fix the aircraft so that meant i would spend most of my daylight hours actually out on the flight line now that may not be flying the aircraft it may be running an auxiliary power unit that's a smaller small engine uh that's in the aircraft and helping the the maintainers actually fix the aircraft or i'd be out with the maintenance test pilot flying the aircraft and helping them. So you got uh, some
0: mechanical hands-on experience. It sounds like along the way then.
1: Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of sustainment and logistical, um,
0: just institutional
1: knowledge that you kind of get force fed and you have to learn because yeah, it's not, it's not a part of flying, but it's a part of the job. And so I just had to learn all sorts of, of logistical and, and maintenance functions and actions. Great, great experience. Um, Learned so, much about, learned so much about the aircraft that had nothing to do with flying the aircraft that it was, it was truly invaluable.
0: Now, um, th- these Apache, these are attack helicopters that are uh, mm-hmm. basically, are they personnel attack helicopters? Are they tank uh, you know, equipment attack helicopters? What type of, what was the, uh, I guess, the ammunition that was used primarily in these? Because I'm not that familiar with them. I know the name, but I'm not that familiar with them.
1: Feel free to Google a uh, picture of him here while we're talking. Okay. Um, I believe the the definition of the Apache uh, per the technical manual is that it is a twin engine tandem seat aerial weapons platform. Originally, it came out in the 1970s. Uh, I was not even alive in the 1970s, but I hear back then that the Russians, the Soviet Union may have been causing some anxiety with the U.S., and so... The apaches were designed to take on the russian tank army so originally designed to be tank killers uh ammunition that they can fire is either the they've got the agn that's air to ground missile 114 and there's various different um types of those missiles those are air to ground missiles they can be anti-tank they can be anti-personnel they can be used to clear out caves or clear out buildings or or you know go into some shallow shallow bunkers. There is the M230 Echo chain gun. Uh that's a 30 millimeter cannon that sits under slung of the, the co-pilot gunner front seat. That uh 30 millimeter cannon, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it fires something like uh 600 rounds plus or minus uh 25 rounds. Or five hundred rounds plus minus twenty five rounds per minute, and that's based off the hydraulic motor that drives the the chain gun there. And then there are two point seven five inch hydro rockets with two diffuse warhead combinations for me to go into in this setting. Uh but those there's, there's a lot of different things you can do with, with the hydro rockets.
0: Now is this what they also call the Warthog? Is this the same So that's
1: going to be the A ten. That okay. is, and I'm, I'm going to have a little bit of an ego here, and I'm going to say that's the only aircraft I ever actually looked up to, and be like, that'd be something cool to fly.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, that's that's an Air Force uh, aircraft as opposed to I flew for the Army. So no, nope, the the Apache is just a it's an aerial weapons platform, commonly used right now in either like in Iraq we did a lot of um, like troops in contact, so you get a 911 call, something bad's going on. And you ride to the rescue Um, or you do a dedicated strike line, which is a dedicated mission planned out in advance. And they say, hey, this is what you're going to go do tomorrow. These are the munitions you need to take with you. Good luck. Have fun.
0: Okay. yeah, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page on it and it looks like it's manufactured by Hughes, McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. All three manufacturers. Oh, Hughes Mm -hmm. from 75 to 84, McDonald from 84 Mm -hmm. to 97. And then since then, it looks like Boeing has been the main manufacturer of it.
1: Correct. Now, you will still find, here's your your fun little tidbit of knowledge, you will still find the Hughes manufacturing name on the foot pedals (laughs) of the AH AH-64 Delta model. I don't believe they're on the Echos anymore. Again, random little tidbits that you just absorb and go. Why do I know this nowadays? So,
0: so now yeah, manufactured by Boeing. So you're a, you are now. Are you a helicopter pilot in, in in the private sector as well? Then do you have the qualifications to be a helicopter pilot?
1: Mm-hmm. That was actually so. That was my bachelor's was to get my commercial instrument ratings on the civilian side, um, and that was through a program that the Army in North Dakota, the University of North Dakota, used to have. They got rid of, um, in about 2009, 2010, um, when it just changed the administration, they got rid of it, but I believe they brought it back. Um, and so anyone who's looking to go get a bachelor's degree in aerospace and let the Army wrote me, they gave me a bank account for a quarter million dollars at 19 years old, which is, looking back on it, just... What a high risk investment <laughs> to give a nineteen year old just a bank account with, you know, a quarter or one hundred twenty five thousand dollars in it. But yeah, they they paid for everything.
0: That's pretty nice. And this was so they paid for your training in in the private sector. It sounds like then, and then you went. They did. And then you got additional training when you got into the army. Is that right? Correct. Okay. That's correct. Okay. So do you use your helicopter license? Do you keep it active still today?
1: Um no um, I could I would need to go get do a few flight reviews and I could go fly uh, privately or commercially the the lifestyle for most of those jobs whether it's ems um, it, they tend to be pretty hard hours and I learned one thing in the army and that's I really like sleeping in my own bed at night <laughs> you know so that's kind of a key thing to my lifestyle is sleeping in my own bed at night so I've I've thought about that. I would also thought about going to the airlines and flying for them. Ultimately, it just wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to have. Okay. It It's great for those people that want to.
0: Well, people that people that are uh, people that are into flying, they, they live, breathe and drink flying. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a passion. It truly is a passion. My wife, uh, a long time ago was, uh, was one of the first, uh, newborn ICU transport nurses. And mm-hmm. she, she, they were typically using Bell long Rangers for the most part, and they might have mm-hmm. changed after that. But she said their best pilots, by far the best pilots that they had, came from the Vietnam War. They were Vietnam mm-hmm. helicopter pilots that 's where they came from for the military she never she never ever wanted to fly with a non military pilot and i don 't think they even hired them i don 't think they really even hired them because they 'd seen so much more time in the air than than uh, than, than a non-military. It's too expensive. Oh, yeah. It's too expensive to get the hours. It, that's the bottom it line. It is
1: incredibly cost prohibitive. There was no way I could have done what I did without the Army paying for it. Okay. So, I mean, my mom my mom's a teacher. My dad is a defense contractor, but we're not. We grew up on my mom's teacher salary. We were not going to be paying the quarter million dollars for me to go learn how to fly out of pocket. That's for sure. So the Army offered me a lot of wonderful opportunities and I'm very very thankful for those.
0: So now you did you chose to go up to North Dakota specifically for this program then?
1: Yep that's correct and all the research that I had done into the University of North Dakota was I watched the movie Fargo <laughs> um and I was like surely it can't be that cold up there uh it can it it can be real cold in North Dakota. I believe you're in, in Utah, aren't you? Right.
0: And where we have our summer home or our our year round home, it'll get as low as twenty below zero at times, but not for extended periods of time. And up there I think it's always that cold in the winter, isn't it? Yeah. Negative
1: negative forty is an experience. That like instantaneous I think it's called instantaneous homogenation or instantaneous nucleation of the of the water freezing or the snot freezing inside your nose just Really interesting experiences in
0: Dakota. A, <laughs>
1: you see, I didn't settle down back there, and there may be a reason for
0: that. No, I think if, unless you're a farmer, that's not really a, or or in the oil, is it oil? the oil industry? The oil industry, that's really not a, a popular spot to choose to live. But I guess if you're a farmer, that has got some great farmland up there, mm-hmm. and it's flatlands. I've driven across it one time, only one time, and yeah, in the summer, For I wouldn't want to do it in the winter. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it was it was a place I lived there for a while, but now I've found the the mountains of Colorado were much more much more beautiful.
0: Where did you meet your wife?
1: Uh, so she was actually a pharmacist at uh, one of the local hospitals there. She was in Temple, Texas, and I was stationed at Killeen, Texas. So it was about thirty minutes away. Okay. Um, and this is gonna sound goofy, but she and I actually met on Tinder. Okay. Which, for those of you who are not millennials, that would be a dating app
0: yeah well i have heard of it, but I've never used it so oh, that's between you and your significant other
1: and what you two choose to do, and that's a whole <laughs> lot of none of my business sir
0: okay so you you dated quite a while, lived together quite a while before you got married then
1: uh actually just two two years ago. okay, I'm not gonna let her list this, so she's gonna correct me on that one yeah yeah we we dated from sixteen to eighteen. Uh, they got married in 18, so coming up on just past her fifth year anniversary, actually.
0: All right, so quick. What What's what's her birth date?
1: March 2nd. That oh, evening.
0: you're good. You passed the exam. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a period of time where she's a few weeks older than me, and I always remind her of it. I'm
0: like, oh, man,
1: you're just robbing the cradle over here.
0: So you go through all this. You're looking to be a a, a career military officer. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you basically lose your opportunity. And I'm going to relate a, a story that I have uh, about this as well, just cause it's an interesting story. I, I owned, I started in Utah, a brine shrimp company along with a partner and brine shrimp is, if most people don't know, this is, a is the only, well, it's, it, it 's a small insect that grows in the water on the Great Salt Lake, In fact, it grows everywhere mm-hmm. in salt waters but in, in on the great salt lake its it 's one of the two or three lakes in the world that has commercial uh, co- uh, it, it has a commercial source there 's enough of it that grows because there 's no predators on the Great Salt lake in the uh, in the ocean there 's predators that eat it it 's like mother 's milk to, to uh, fry and shrimp anyway. We started this company. And the way you harvested brine shrimp, and it wasn't brine shrimp itself, it was the brine shrimp eggs, was in the middle of the winter when it was dead calm on the water, on the Great Salt Lake, these eggs would float to the surface of the water and they would form slicks. And then you would gather them up using oil boom technology. So you'd go circle it with a a boom, a floating boom, and then you would pump out the brine shrimp's eggs into porous bags, and the water would run out, and the brine eggs would would remain. But we had to fly the lake uh, every day, morning and night, and I had to hire a pilot to come down there and, and fly the lake, and we had this wonderful pilot. He was a lot like you were in his younger years, and he lived, breathed, drank, and he wanted to get as many hours in as he could, so he was always there at the crack of dawn flying the lake, did a great job. And uh, we were really happy with him. And then, uh, in his 20s, he suddenly didn't show up to work for a few days. So we started getting strange uh, voice messages from him on our recorder. This is back when you had these recorded messages. He didn't have cell phones. We did have cell phones, but they were the big bricks, if you remember the big brick cell phones back then. But they were few and far between. But anyway, what had happened is... He, at that point in time, he would he had developed manic depression, and that's when it manifests itself. and his goal in life was to become a naval aviator. He was doing everything he was studying aeronautical engineering, he was getting his he already had a, his private pilot's license. he was doing all all he could to go down this path, and I felt so sorry for him because that pretty much killed any opportunity he had of being a naval aviator because of the mental instability of it. So yeah, sometimes you don't get what you want to get is, is what I'm getting at. And so you had to pivot and why mm-hmm. did you pivot to securities?
1: Um, so right, right before my wife and I got out, we were planning on moving back to to Colorado and, uh, we were dual income, no kids. My wife was a, you know, doctor of pharmacy pulling six figures, I was in the army pulling in six figures, and didn't know anything about investing. I mean, I knew that the stock market existed. That's about it. Um, Couldn't have told you really anything else outside of some people buy stocks. Uh, And then I was invested in my TSP. And I didn't know how just, you know, had some allocations out there. And uh, I was talking to my mom, and she was like, well, you should meet with, with our financial advisor. He works a lot with teachers. And so I was like, okay, meet with him. Uh, and so we met with, with who's now my boss. Um, but we met with Mark and, you know, he was kind of telling me what he does and how he works with teachers. And he kind of gave this gross overview of, of what a financial advisor is. And fundamentally, I'll boil it down to it's, Teaching, coaching, mentoring, and guiding, which is the Army's definition of leadership. So he he sat there and he's saying all these words, and I'm like, okay, these are, these are some buzzwords that I'm I'm kind of recognizing here, and kind of drawing some correlations with what he does with his clients and, and what I had done in the Army. Um, did not think at that point in time to ask him about actually entering the the industry at all. Uh, I actually went and got a job with my best friend doing sales for about about a year. Uh, but still kept working at this with my financial advisor as a client and just kept asking him and kinda hounding him about, you know, what is it like? You know, what what do you do? How how do you get involved in this profession? And and things like that. And he didn't have a position for me at the time, but he was like, Hey, why don't you go go take the SIE? I'm like, okay. So didn't even know what the SIE was. Uh, and came across this podcast that would help me study for it, which was kind of perfect as a traveling salesman. So I just started listening to the SIE podcast, driving around all up and down Colorado and eventually passed the SIE, looked at my financial, you know, advisor said, Hey, pass this SIE. Now what do, you do? Now what do I do? And he goes, well, you're probably enough to go work for, for, you know, big, big call center type firm in, in get some experience under your belt and whatnot. And that didn't sound all that appealing to me. Now, that's my personality. That's my personality. That's nothing against those companies. So, um, but my wife and I, while I was studying, while I took the SIE, the my wife was pregnant. She actually gave birth to our son. Um, and I took a little hiatus from doing that sales job. And Now, what, while were, kinda, what were you
0: selling? What were you selling?
1: Uh, I was doing, so for those of you who are in sales or have ever done sales, it's called one call close. So a client sets an appointment and I would go out to their house and I would try and close a deal for pergolas, patio covers, or sunrooms.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Sorry, so, to, sorry to interrupt you, but let, you know, that's important. Yeah. It's the details. It,
1: so. it, it is. And that, that sales experience, um, I think it was kind of invaluable because I heard no a lot you get really good at hearing the word no <laughs> in sales whether you want to or not you get you get really good at it um but you also kind of develop a, a thick skin to to people either not wanting to buy your product or, or you'll even come across people that just don't like your personality and it's nothing personal it's just how you communicate and how they communicate are different and that's okay that that's that's okay um so yeah another big growing up experience for me there doing sales for a little bit um you know came out of that and while i was sent home helping my wife take care of her son my financial advisor called me he goes hey logan you want to come work in the industry as an administrative assistant I, i can't bring you on as an advisor right now but i do need an administrative assistant and know you could learn the industry from the ground up which is something that in the army officers do not do um officers very much come in being responsible for a group of people almost straight out of college so you're responsible for 30 people and you have zero days of work experience so i kind of took that as a challenge of like yeah why don't i why don't i learn how to do this from the ground up why don't i learn how to put applications together and do all that sort of stuff and give this a shot um, so yeah, I, you know, took that phone call, really wanted to work for my boss just because I, I kind of liked who he was as, as an individual, um, and as a leader in the community. And so I called, called my wife cause she was out at the moment and I was like, Hey, I think, I think Mark just offered me a job. And she goes, yeah, I don't think you've slept enough recently. Cause there's no way Mark just offered you a job. <laughs> So I, I called Mark back. I was like, "Did you actually offer me a job, or am I just sleep deprived from having a new baby?" He's like, "No, no, that was real." Okay, okay, cool. Um, and so yeah, I came on as as an administrative assistant uh, with the SIE. I didn't have the seven, but being you know affiliated with a member firm that uh, facilitated me to take the seven and then the sixty six, and, and eventually come on as an advisor here the first of the year.
0: All right. So you wouldn't pass the other two examinations without actually being an advisor then?
1: Correct. Okay. Okay. Which was, is a little bit different of a route. I hear I hear people that work at other firms, I talk to some folks, and they actually get to come on and, and start working and studying for their tests there with the firm, um, which was not, not my experience. I was studying either free time at work or usually it was just at home uh, after hours. That's where I did the majority of my studying for the 7 and 66.
0: Okay. And did you use the audio lessons for those as well?
1: Yep. For both of those, that's helped me quite a bit, especially if I could do something, I don't want to call it mindless putting an application together, but putting an application together is a lot of copy and paste work. If you do it enough, you can, you know, start listening to, the podcast over and over. And I'm sure I've listened. Sir, I've listened to your voice for so many hours, it's not even funny. <laughs> but, but that's, I mean, it's just how I learned. I'm not, I'm uh, dyslexic. So reading has never been an enjoyable experience for me unless it's science fiction. So for me, the audio lessons were perfect. That was exactly how I needed to study for for the seven hundred sixty-six.
0: That's great. I w- I'm going to tell you my experience into getting in the industry because it's it's fairly, it's, it's totally different from yours, but it's just my path. And my path was I l- grew up in, in Utah and I, I was dragged kicking and screaming from this delightful little town up in northern Utah called Logan, where in the winter I skied and in the summer I hiked in the mountains and hang, hung out with my friends back to South Bend, Indiana, where my dad was going to Notre Dame, at the, got a scholarship to go to Notre Dame. And this is just as I went into high school. And I was bored out of my mind because I'm used to the mountains, not the flatlands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had to do something to keep myself from going crazy. So um, among, among other things, I started investing in stocks. I, I was always inv- interested in money uh, because my family never had any. So money was mm-hmm. important to me, and uh, so I started. I worked. I had a part time job as a busboy or uh, usher at a theater. Or so, my own money, and I started investing. I set up a uniform gift to miners oh. account with a broker, a local broker with a company called Francis I, Francis I Dupont and Company, which is long gone. This is back in the nineteen. 19- <laughs> Probably 1969, 1970. I graduated from high school in 71, so it was 69, 70, 71. and um, the My bro- parents
1: were born by then, just to throw some
0: context <laughs> as to how okay. I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a lot older. I've seen a lot. You know, I've seen a lot over the years. But anyway, I, I went to my, my dad. My broker, of course, had to get the approval of my father whenever I wanted to do a trade. Not that I could do big trades. I would do three or four shares of something at a time, not 100 shares. But mm-hmm. my dad just said to my broker, I said, do whatever he wants. It's his money. Whatever he wants to do is fine. So after that, he never really felt like he needed it to, to get the okay from my father. So it's not enough to do any damage, but enough to learn a hell of a lot is what it was. Because mm-hmm. you can do all the trading on paper you want, but until your money's on the line, you don't learn a damn thing. But anyway, I went to my broker and uh, when I graduated from, from high school, and I said, what do I need to do to become a, a stockbroker? I want to be a stockbroker. And he gave me great advice. He said, well, you know, go to school, get a degree in economics and accounting if you can, and then don't even think about going into the industry until you're uh, at least in your 30s, because nobody's going to trust you with their money you don't have any experience. You don't have any of your own money. So nobody's going to trust you with their money if you're just a young punk. And I pretty much followed his advice to a T. I went to school, graduated from college in three years. I was 20 years old when I graduated, so I couldn't pass, couldn't even take the CPA examination at the time. And uh, went to work for a Liberty Mutual Insurance Company as an outside claims adjuster. And, it, and to this day, that was probably one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had because it was high liability claims. And I would go into the office and the manager would give me cases to work on and said, okay, go out and investigate them and, and settle them if you can. If you can't, prepare prepare the evidence to go to court if we can't settle this claim and determine liability. And And that was it. It was not The fender bender type claims you usually think about with an insurance adjuster or property damage claims. These were high liability claims, and one day in the I was allowed one day in the office a week. Other than that, I had a company car, an expense account, and I would go out and investigate claims. Well, this was great. It was interesting. It was fun. But you know, it wasn't wasn't profession. I wanted to get the um, so I, during that period of time during that two years I worked for Liberty Mutual I passed the cPA examination and then I went to work for a cPA firm and I lasted about six months i absolutely i love the the uh, I love accounting as the language of business, but the actual practice of accounting for me was numb numbing mind numbing I was sitting on an audit one day and I looked to my uh, compatriot next to me, and I said, "Do you really like this?" He said, "Well, I really do." I said, "Well, I'm glad you found your niche in life because I haven't." And then I uh, and then I left the CPA firm, and I said, "Okay, well, I'm. Uh, I think I was about 26 years old at the, No, no, I was about 25 years old at the time. No, I was even younger than that. Probably 24." And I said, okay, now it's time to go out and get my sales experience because that's what the broker told me to do, go out and get some sales experience. So I went to work for a company selling industrial wire and cable and electrical terminals and nuts and bolts. And uh, just like you, got out and drove around and made calls on people that use these products and got a lot of no's along the way, but, you know, muddled through. And then when I turned 30, I said, okay, Time to go do what I wanted to do initially, and when I f- applied at three different brokerage firms, warehouse firms, I was offered three different jobs because I'd laid out the foundation just like like I had and probably the most important part of that was the sales experience more than anything else, so that was my path into the financial services industry and when When I went to work for this firm, it was Sherson Lehman. At the time, it later became Shearson Lehman Hutton, then Hutton, and then I don't even know what it's called anymore. But they gave me, they said, okay, you're hired. You've got um, six weeks to, tr- to take the exam. So they sent me in an office and gave me a, a whole stack of uh, booklets to read and prepare for the Series 7 exam. And if I failed the 7 exam, I was fired instantly. But most of this stuff was stuff I already knew. It wasn't really that much new, except for the rules and regulations. Because they always change, and the taxes always change. But the, it was not that hard for me to study for it. But Then uh, I passed that, and then um, then the next, next hoop I had to jump through was if I did not get 15 accounts within six months I was fired then. So then you're motivated to start working your butt off to call up, at that time, cold call people you had no idea who are, would who you were and work your butt off. I hated that. That was terrible. But that's what you had to do at that point in time. Now I don't know how people build up a, a client base because unless you work for somebody that has an established client base like you are, uh, how do you get new clients? How, how, tell us how you go about getting new clients.
1: I. Uh- I mean, I fall into the latter category, though. I mean, we we've got a, a book of business, um, and so I kind of have a, a dual mandate of service our existing clients and go go get new clients. Um, I, I'd say a fair amount of my day right now is is servicing our existing clients and, and doing the account maintenance there. Um, you know, it. I think. I think it's kind of difficult these days to get new clients. Um, now our firm, we do a lot of work with teachers, um, and other, um, you know, state workers that are on the the state pension here. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're able to generate a lot of new business, um, just working with teachers and, and, I don't know if if you know this, but teachers um, are not an overpaid uh, group of individuals.
0: My mother was a teacher. <laughs> my mother Has, that's that's who that's who supported our family was my mother for the most part, just mm-hmm. like you're talking about. So, yeah,
1: yeah. But we just we just do a lot of work with teachers, and, and a lot of it is is pro bono work, and that gets our name out there. Okay. And that's that's how we're we're tackling that. That hurdle of how do we get new clients is just just do good work. Just help people. That that's I wish I had something fancier. I wish I had, oh, we use this program, we use that.
0: Nope. No, we nope. just
1: do good things for people.
0: I think that's the reality. People that think you're going to get rich quick in this business either become criminals, which I've seen several <laughs> times. Or uh, or go on to other things because this is a very, very high turnover business because the expectation is the money is easy and the reality is the money is is hard. And it takes building up relationships to, to build up a good bi- book of business. But, you know, I would come into the office at 6 in the morning and start dialing New York. People I had no idea who they were in New York. And then uh, – let me ignore this. And uh, – and then I worked my way across country and end up in California at 7 at night. But uh, it, was, it was, you know, out of every 100 car- calls, somebody would say, okay, call me back in another month. And out of every 100 of those, one would say, okay, well, let's, do a business, let's do a trade together. So, I mean, it was, it was very, very, very slow work. And I haven't made a cold call in 20 years now. But it's, <laughs> it, was, it was tough to build up my business, my book of business. And along the way almost everybody that went through my training class with me has come and gone. I'm probably one of the few that's still there. But it's a very high turnover business and a lot of people don't understand that. And uh, they expect instant success and it doesn't come
1: it really, yeah. no, it, it really doesn't. I know all the all the senior partners that we have here they all did a very similar experience working in the working in the call center, working in the warehouse just cold calling folks and i'm very very fortunate to be in a position that my boss is like that's not what i want you doing you can help you know maintain the book of business that that he's already built and then go go start finding my own my own clients and building my own book of business but it's i mean it's a lot of work for not a whole lot starting off and that's hopefully people are okay and hopefully they understand that, know that getting into the industry. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and and people find out and if they, it doesn't work out, they end up doing something else. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much the way it is. We've gone on for surprisingly enough, about 40 minutes now. And uh, if you could give recommendations to somebody following in your footsteps, what would they be?
1: Oh goodness. Um, Honestly, I think my first recommendation was was figure out who you are and what brings you joy. As silly as that may sound, but I I've I've found there's a there's a Greek proverb out there that says society grows great when old men plant seed plant trees in whose shade they will never sit in. And while I don't really consider myself that old at thirty-two, I do have a son and that's kind of kind of shaped how I look at the world and, and when I was first starting to look at this this industry and realizing that my boss does the army leadership, the teaching, coaching, mentoring, and guiding, and he's helping teachers, that's a that's a pretty easy mission statement or, or you know, cause to get behind, if you will. I wake up every day and I help teachers.
0: Yep. And, you, and, you, sli- and you sleep well at night knowing that's what I you're do. doing too. Yeah.
1: I I really do. And I made the joke earlier about how much I value sleeping in my own bed every night, but just knowing who you are, what drives you, what motivates you. And I think that would help. Help a lot of folks if they can just kind of do a little bit of of self-reflection first before they go out and say, oh, I want to go work for this company or that company or I want to be an advisor. I mean, man, if you don't like picking up the phone and and calling people, I don't know if being a financial advisor is the right thing to do, but maybe you could work in an inbound call center. Hmm. You can still use all the same skill sets, but now instead of having to make that, that fearful phone call, if the phone just rings for you. That's
0: not too hard. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, people are afraid of picking up the call, the phone. You know, my daughters, instead of calling me, <laughs> send me texts. And I say, just mm-hmm. call me up. Call me up. Don't worry about if it. it's inconvenient for me. If I can't talk, I'll call you back. But but that seems to be the world we live in now is everybody wants to communicate by emails or by texts. And I'm old school. I like to pick up the phone and call somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of misunderstandings within my wife's family, extended family, when somebody starts getting snide with emails, and suddenly feelings are hurt, and instead of just picking up the phone and talking to people, it just <laughs> enlarges, gets larger and larger until sometimes it boils over. So it's easier to talk on, for me, it's easier to talk on the phone than than going through emails. First of all, I'm a terrible typist, and I hate typing. So that's why I do audio lessons instead of books. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and I'm sure. And, and we just we recently had a had one of our junior partners leave uh, the firm. And I'm, I'm actually stepping up into his position. Great kid, young kid, you know, mid twenties, really bright, really smart, like a genuinely nice person. But man, that phone just weighed five hundred pounds if he had to call somebody. I saw one of our clients called him easy he could handle whatever it was and so it's just one of those like we looked at it and it's like man you'd be really good working for a bigger firm in an inbound call center
0: mm-hmm.
1: you'd be great the phone would have always ring for you and you wouldn't have to do outbound calls and it's just those those little things that if people can learn about themselves as they go along figure out who they are what they want to do and then just just go for it i know that i've I don't do well reading because I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So instead of buying some of these study guides to get into the industry, I bought a podcast and then another podcast and then a third podcast because that's that's what helped me study. And I know that reading's not my strong suit, but I can listen to somebody talk about bonds. For, for five straight episodes, <laughs> fixed income. That's right. In three separate different podcasts, and by golly, I'll pick up something.
0: Yeah, re- repetition is a key on a lot of this stuff for me. So
1: it it sure is. Like, like I've gone through. I think I listened to the SIE for about. Oh, I listened to that podcast for about eight or nine months, and that's a relatively easy test once you've listened to the podcast on repeat for four hours a day for eight or nine months. That was, that was not a hard test <laughs> That's good. with that much repetition. <laughs> That's
0: good. That's good. All right, Logan, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else we should add before we finish up this, this podcast?
1: No, I, I appreciate the, the offer um, for the interview. I appreciate your time and, and visiting with me. And yeah, the, the podcast is 40 some minutes, but, but we've, talked offline quite a bit more and and so yeah I just I really appreciate yeah you know the the time and the thoughtfulness on your end um you know and and giving me this opportunity to just tell people a little bit about myself um so thank you very much for that sir
0: thanks for sharing i really appreciate it you take care you too okay, okay hold uh